Welcome to Conversations for Life, a marriage and family podcast from Cross Life with hosts Jonathan and Kathleen. Each episode, we sit down and talk about things that matter most to those that matter most to you. We're so glad you're with us today. Please pull up a chair and join us in the conversation. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Conversations for Life. Today, we're honored and blessed to be joined by Dr. Craig Evans, who is the John Bisano Distinguished Professor of Christian Origins at Houston Baptist University here in Texas. Dr. Evans is author and editor of more than 70 books and hundreds of articles and reviews, and he's given lectures at Cambridge, Oxford, Durham, Yale, and other universities, colleges, seminaries, and museums. He's also a Fox News opinion contributor and regularly lectures and gives talks at popular conferences and retreats on the historical Jesus, archaeology, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Bible. So Dr. Evans, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Good to be with you. So Dr. Evans, we asked you to come on because we want to talk with you about a topic that we know is vital to all believers, but of course, especially for parents with children, and that's the reliability of Scripture. How can believers know that we can have confidence in the Bible and in the text? And this deals with much of your extensive research and experience, and so I'm really looking forward to hearing from some of your wisdom and the results of 40 years of training and teaching, especially, too, as you've interacted with college students in your setting and seeing them go through some of these questions and wrestling with them. So, yeah, thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're very welcome. So, Dr. Evans, why is it vital for parents to learn about the reliability of Scripture and the confidence that we can have in it, and also to help our children, especially adolescents and young adult um, college-age kids, to explore those questions? Well, I think it's very important that children understand that uh, Scripture is solid, that there are very good reasons uh, and good evidence that shows that it's not mythology, it's, it's not a lot of just silliness and old myths, but uh, that the history in the Bible uh, is well-informed and accurate, and that the, uh, the theology of the Bible uh, is coherent, makes good sense, and describes the realities, uh, what people are like, hum- human nature and so on, describes all that very well. But that means that parents need to know what the evidence actually is. Parents need to know what that uh, the good reasons are. And uh, Sunday school teachers, people uh, who teach children, need to know that. And they need to know, too, that uh, bad answers are not good. Bad answers, you know, are terrible. And, and what mm-hmm. will happen is if you don't know the answer and you, and you uh, give a bad answer, a, ch- a child will grow up and eventually find out that was a bad answer answer, and that might undermine their confidence uh, in Scripture, in Christian faith, in belief in God, because they've heard stuff that turns out to be uh, really nonsense. Well, and one of the most common criticisms about the Bible is that the text we have in our Bible is actually a mishmash of original documents that we don't have access to anymore. And so, for this reason, you know, we're told that we shouldn't have any faith or trust in Isaiah as Scripture, or Genesis, or 2 Corinthians, because they're all just made up of several other documents cobbled together. Can you speak a little bit to this criticism, and uh, through your own research, help parents with a few guidelines about how to answer this question? Well, you know, there are two things that need to be said about that. Number one, the criticism itself is very naive, because whoever says that 
is unaware of our sources, all of our sources from history, ancient historians, Greeks, Romans, uh, Hebrew writers, uh, ancient Near Eastern, and so on. Everybody makes use of sources. That's just plain good historiographer, a historiography. Mm -hmm. Nobody writes history today. Nobody ever wrote history anytime and did not make use of sources. If there were no sources, the history would be considered uh, questionable. You always cons uh, consult with eyewitnesses. If there are written documents that go back in time, you consult with those too. The second thing that needs to be said, and it's sometimes it's Christians themselves that create the problem, they get this idea that if something's inspired, there can't be any sources. I don't know where that came from, Mm -hmm. uh, I think the idea is, well, look, if, if Matthew is inspired, why does he need the gospel of Mark or any other source? If Luke is inspired, why does he? And, and see, I think that's naive and it's based on faulty thinking. And it gets back to what I was saying earlier. It's giving a poor answer. Uh, it's mm -hmm. telling a child, well, you know, Scripture can be trusted because it's inspired. And what you really talk about is a biblical writer in a trance who then just starts mechanically writing. Uh, it's like his brain isn't even engaged. And dictation theory of inspiration is what that is called. And that is simply incorrect. And informed Christian theologians and scholars don't, don't argue for that. The, historically, the church never argued for that. And so Christians sometimes naively teach children the wrong thing about the Bible. They think it's a high view of Scripture. It's actually naive. And so uh, when somebody points out, oh, you know, there probably were sources. Matthew may well have used sources. Luke even talks about sources at the beginning of his gospel. Then people think, oh, my goodness, that's terrible, because if you're inspired, you can't use sources. And so that's the problem. It's just odd thinking in the first place. Well, in terms of Old Testament books, when people argue that Genesis or other books were written hundreds of years later, do you have any thoughts about how to respond to those kinds of questions about the Old Testament in particular? Well, yeah, sure. Uh, there was definitely a historical Moses. The minimalists will say, oh, there's no Moses. And when they do that, they create far more problems, create more questions than they answer. There's a historical Moses. This history happens. But you don't have to go so far as to say that Moses gave us the five books of the Pentateuch exactly the way we have them. Because, again, it's saying, well, I guess you can't have sources if you have inspiration. Well, that's that's nonsense. And mm -hmm. it goes back. I think it's it's like a almost magical understanding of the Bible, uh, kind of what I sometimes call the Book of Mormon understanding of the Bible. It just sort of drops out of the sky. You find it written on gold. Mm. It's in a cave and with special glasses. You can read it. I mean, come on. Let's not be silly. And by the way, I, the reason I use that analogy is because I think that's exactly how Joseph Smith thought the Bible ought to be. And so if he was going to come up with a new revelation— in his naive way of thinking, then it's supposed to be delivered by an angel. It's supposed to be written on gold tablets that you find in a cave somewhere. And so that's why I call it a Book of Mormon mentality. No, the Bible is real, written by real people. Sources are used. And yes, these are people that have profound experiences with God, insight into God. There is revelation going on. There is inspiration. And 
That includes the editors, people who do combine things, people who polish the work, finish the work, and present it in what becomes recognized as canon. And so, you know, and, and by the way, evangelical scholars know this. We sometimes talk about God's secretaries, you know, who deserve credit. And when you think about it, almost half of the Old Testament's anonymous. We don't even know who the people are who wrote the books. Right. Right. See, and, and that's okay. We don't have to say Samuel wrote Samuel or, you know, the, and, and I've heard, I heard a guy actually tried to argue that Samson wrote the first half of the book of Judges as though that <laughs> made him feel better. And I'm thinking, really? That makes you more confident in Judges knowing that, Sam, that Samson wrote it? I mean, that is getting silly. You don't have to identify some great hero to have confidence that the scriptural text is accurate and reflects what God wants us to know. Right, absolutely. Our confidence is not in Moses himself, it's in the God who inspired him to write it. And I also like how you said that it's a naive way of thinking because we're almost putting too much pressure on ourselves as Christians. To be able to have confidence in this, it has to meet all of these criteria. But actually, God uses people and much more of what we might call earthly, earthy means um, for doing this than this criticism would allow. And um, another criticism is that the books we have in the Bible are there either because of accident or merely tradition or even a willful attempt to make certain doctrines and teachings the official beliefs of the church over against some opponent's beliefs. So kind of the idea that history is written by the victor. So can you talk about this criticism and about how we can have confidence that the books that are in the Bible are set apart as inspired by God? Well, I'm glad you asked this question. This is the one I love to beat up on. It's what's behind Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code. It's behind a lot of that stuff. You know, the conspiracy idea, some guys get together and they're going to decide which gospels to include or what the gospels ought to say, monkey around with the text, get it so that it says whatever. What is so right. silly about it is behind it is a massive, of anachronism. It's the assumption that the Nicene Creed, let us say, of the fourth century is in the minds of people in the first and second centuries, so they know how the text ought to be edited and oh, interesting. with. They know which gospels. I mean, when you think about it, if, if you're somebody at the end of the first century or even even halfway through the second century and some gospels are floating around, do you actually know what the contents of the New Testament will be? Of course not. And if you're a scribe and you're sitting down with the text of any one of the gospels you care to name, do you know exactly how the text ought to, to read so that guys in the year 325 will be happy? So that the, <laughs> the Nicene people will go, oh, phew, that scribe got it right. This is what's silly behind some of the stuff that uh, Professor Bart Ehrman does. You know, we got, you know, somebody was tampering, theologically motivated tampering with the gospel. And so what's wrong with that is that there isn't anybody when the New Testament gospels have been written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're all written before the end of the first century. So somebody at the beginning of the second century does not know which Gospels are going to end up in a New Testament. That person doesn't even know there's going to be a New Testament. That person doesn't know how high Christology versus low Christology. Is Jesus fully God? Is he fully man? That 
the, no scribe knows what the answer to that question is going to be when the theologians hammer it out. Here's another thing. Most of the scribes in the first century and second century, they're professional scribes. Many of them aren't even Christians. They don't know how to tinker with the text. They're paid simply to copy it accurately. And so if you understand that, all of this conspiracy stuff, tampering stuff, ideas, it just goes right out the window. It has no foundation at all. And Dr. Evans, one of the things I learned that was really helpful in my own work seeking to gain confidence in Scripture is that whenever you see idiosyncrasies uh, between the Bible and the culture of the time, it's a great clue that the authors were not just writing with the mind to please others. They were writing what actually happened and what they firmly believed to be true. Well, let me add on that. Uh, you, you know, you're touching on a very important point. Uh, the, the resurrection narratives themselves. The gospel writers clearly are recording what happened, what pe people reported, not telling the story in a way that would be the most impressive for skeptics. And we know that because uh, in the first century and beyond, uh, women were not considered top witnesses. And so what do the Gospels tell us? Mary Magdalene, for crying out loud, she's the first woman to find the empty tomb. She's a key witness. And in the second century and beyond, skeptics complained and would say things like, oh, you Christians, I can't believe you, uh, you believe that story because it's reported by women, historical, uh, hysterical women for Pete's sakes. Mary Magdalene from a wretched village one skeptic says. And so in response to that, a, a second century gospel called the Gospel of Peter, and of course Peter had nothing to do with it, but in response to that, a writer says, oh, well, actually uh, Jewish elders were at the tomb, uh, a whole Roman platoon at the tomb, all 12 or all 11 of the male disciples were at oh, the tomb. And the women get pushed aside. And so now, yeah, now, of course, the resurrection narrative is the way it ought to be to impress Celsus and Porphyry and some of these other skeptics. But see, th that uh, makes the point because the gospel writers, they knew perfectly well what would impress. I mean, when Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15 and says Christ really was raised, he lists only men because he's making that apologetic point. But when the gospel writers tell what happened, they say, this is how it started. Mary Magdalene and other women went to the tomb first. They were the first witnesses. They weren't being controlled by what was politically correct for their time. They wanted to be truthful. And I think that makes a very strong argument that the gospels are committed to truth and not fiction, even if the fiction might play a little better. Right. If people are going to invent a text or a story that they want others to believe is true, they're going to make it seem more probable, uh, more suitable and acceptable to that current culture, not less so. And so I think from our vantage point here, we can miss this if we don't understand things like what you just mentioned. For example, that women weren't considered very credible witnesses. So no writer who wanted to invent a story about the resurrection of Jesus would have made women, the first to see him, would have made women the witnesses that he was raised from the dead. 
we have a lot of examples like that. When you get a change, when you get something that moves away from the original biblical text, whether it's a whole new writing or a, an attempt to alter the text, it's always moving it into a direction that's more acceptable that time. And I think that is a very interesting thing to observe. And so, Dr. Evans, I know that Bart Ehrman is one of the most vocal and popular critics of the canon of Scripture. One of his common claims is that what we consider Scripture today, especially regarding the New Testament, actually reflects a power struggle in the early church to define what was orthodoxy. Uh, I'd love for you to interact with him a little bit, because I know for students going off to college, he is probably going to be the guy that they're going to hear many of the critical arguments from. Well, what Bart Ehrman does is he plays off of what a, I would call a naive criticism, a naive fundamentalist mm -hmm. way of understanding Scripture. And so it could be the text itself, so textual critical observations, that is, discrepancies in the manuscripts. Uh, that becomes evidence that we really don't know how the original text read. And, uh, and of course, that's utterly silly and naive. Uh, that's not how textual critics understand it. We always know that handwritten manuscripts have numerous mistakes, but we have numerous manuscripts and we can compare them and we can identify the mistakes. They're very obvious. Out of thousands of lines that make up the New Testament, there are very, very few where we're not sure how it reads. And in not one case... Uh, does it reflect any serious, uh, significant Christian teaching? And so that is just a non-issue. Sometimes people point out discrepancies or contradictions when you compare the Gospels, two or three stories that are the same. They seem to be a little bit different. That is normal for this kind of literature. We all know that the Gospels should not be read in a, in a very literalistic, scientific fashion. And by the way, I think Bart Ehrman knows that. Some The joke is there are two Bart Ehrmans. There's the scholar who doesn't make those extreme uh, claims, and there's the popular writer who does. And oh, so, interesting. Yeah, and, that, and by the way, I've heard, I, I say that publicly to you because it's been said publicly to Bart himself. I know him. I regard him as a friend. We say hello mm -hmm. to each other every year at least once. And uh, I've, I've heard that actually said right in front of him before a debate begins, and he laughs. Dr. Evans, a third criticism I'd like to hear you talk about is that the Bible contains numerous historical and scientific inaccuracies, and therefore it can't be trusted. Can you speak some to this? There are two problems that we need to address here. One of them is just the failure to understand what the literature is. And so uh, we tend to read, uh, especially the historical narratives, which is what people are usually talking about, we read them, read them through a modern lens. And so we expect the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, indeed uh, Genesis, Exodus, and so on, we, we read them as though they were written in the modern period. And therefore, the understanding of history, how history should be read and written and how these things should be communicated, uh, we, we expect it to rise to our standards according to our way of doing it. And it's very naive. And that was the problem in the 19th century with the advent 
of, you know, the discovery of antiquity, the beginnings of archaeology, the beginnings of modern science and the rest of that. It was, it was a, there was this disconnect between the present and the past in a bigger way than it had ever been felt before. And so the biblical literature wasn't respected in its setting. It wasn't being read for ancient literature, ancient Near Eastern literature. It was being faulted for not being modern and Western. Mm, the right. second problem is once they went down that path and began faulting it, there were these big leaps, and you alluded to it in your question a moment ago, this minimalism. Well, maybe there wasn't a King David. Maybe there wasn't a King Solomon, a unified, united kingdom. Maybe there wasn't this, that, or the other thing. And, and the reason they were saying that in part was because the evidence for David simply hadn't been found yet. And of course, archaeology continues to dig things up. Now a lot of that minimalism has been embarrassed because the name of David has been written in stone by the Syrians as far back as 800 BC. Uh, it turns out Jerusalem was a large city with a large uh, administrative complex, which would go way beyond the needs for Jerusalem and a small tribal kingdom. Turns out there really was an empire that reached way up north and way south. Um, could people write back then? Of course, we now have an ostracon that dates 3,000 years back and uh, is written in Paleo-Hebrew and appears to be talking about uh, making an announcement that Saul is the king who's needed to defend widows and orphans and so on. And so these discoveries that keep being made embarrass uh, these minimalists. They need, to, they need to learn to change their story. And so if on the one hand we recognize that it's ancient literature, it doesn't tell history the way we think it, it should be, the way we do it now, give the Bible a break and recognize that. And on the other hand, realize, you know, it actually is talking about, Scripture is talking about real people, real places, real events, as ongoing archaeology continues to show. Well, so uh, what resources would you recommend for a parent who wants to learn, A, for themselves about the reliability of Scripture, and then B, be able to walk through these questions with their kids? Do you have some books or resources that you would recommend? Well, I do. Uh, you know, there, I have written one book with this kind of question in mind. Okay. It's called uh, God Speaks, What He Says, What He Means. God Speaks, What He Says, What He Means. It was published a few years ago, 2015, by Worthy uh, Publishers. Okay. And, we'll we'll and make it, sure to link that. Yeah. And it, you know, and it... Uh, I, I try to just take somebody by the hand and say, look, you know, this is what's in the Bible. This is what it is. This is how God speaks to us. This is what it means. Here's the approach. I talk about the biblical literature. I talk about the Bible and science question. Mm -hmm. I talk about, uh, you know, like the Ten Commandments. Is this legalism? No, actually, it protects your rights. Uh, I put scripture into context. Uh, how it reflects the realities of the ancient Near East, how it preserves and improves and protects human life, and so on, and how it continues to be relevant today. And I, I caution against some of the naive stuff that we talked about in the program. Don't teach your kids this kind of stuff because it's wrong. It, it doesn't reflect what the Bible really was, and it will set them up for difficulties later. There are some other books like Ravi Zacharias, it's a great little book called Who Made God? 
Mm-hmm. And the, the subtitle answers to 100 tough questions. Mm. Uh, it's now 10 years old, but I think it's still very relevant. Uh, another guy named Brad Alice, uh, A-L-L-E-S, uh, Life's Big Questions, God's Big Answers. And that's published by Concordia 2010. And then a more recent book by Jim George, A Young Man's Guide to Discovering His Bible, Harvest House 2014. There are others available. You can Google and look up things about uh, understanding the Bible or the Bible for younger readers and so on. But I think the key is that the older reader understands the Bible well so that the older uh, reader of the Bible can teach the younger person better. I do think that's a big problem in today's churches. We're always looking for volunteers to teach Sunday school. And, you know, we put curriculum in their hands, but they get very little instruction themselves. Mm. And uh, we need to instruct, our, you know, teachers better at all levels, but especially for children, so that they don't off the top of their head, you know, and answer a question, give a real poor answer that uh, children will cling to and listen to and believe, and it's wrong, and it'll later come back to uh, embarrass them, discourage them, or harm their faith. Well, and I think the truth there, and this is something that we parents need to hear and own, is that if my child is 18 and their knowledge of the Bible and how to read the Bible is limited, that's less a reflection on them than it is on me. Because I'm the one who should have been training them and helping them learn how to read the Bible while they were growing up. Um, Of course, children will make their own choices as they grow, but it's on me to do what I can to help them learn how to read the Bible and study these kinds of questions. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, But I think it's very important to tell people, uh, and when I'm teaching lay people, I do this all the time, I let them know, hey, listen, there are some really brilliant scholars out there that have deep and profound and good answers to all of these questions. But this isn't a science class. It really isn't, you know, it isn't a course in ancient Near East. It isn't a course in Hebrew. We can't do everything. But I, I have read these guys. I know these people. And the answers are there. And in this course, yeah, we yeah. only treat some of it at a certain level. But whatever you do treat, get it right. Get the facts mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and then assure people that you can go much further if you want and you can read this book and that book and you can go further if that interests you. Yeah, so what we don't want to do is send our kids off to college and they're hearing these questions and these doubts and these criticisms for the first time and they're thinking, oh my gosh, this must be true. I've never heard this before and I've never heard any sort of answer for this. Um, I've never heard anyone critically and positively engage with a text, and so I just don't know what to do. And they throw up their hands. Um, We want to prepare them. We want to have them read books. We want to read with them and talk with them. We want to show them the the plausible and evidence-based answers that we have for these criticisms. Um, And they don't have to know everything, and, and that's okay. But if they know that there are scholars out there who address these issues, who address these criticisms, um, and they know that they can go and learn this, that there's a a source for finding out uh, answers to these questions, answers that accord with what Scripture says. If they know this, if they 
have this experience, that they have this knowledge that they can do this, then we've prepared them to be able to interact with um, these criticisms when they go off to college or, or to wherever they go. And um, yeah, so even with things like archaeology and science, we don't have to be left empty-handed. No, and that's so true. And one of the worst answers that uh, I hear occasionally, and I just cringe, is when somebody says, um, oh, you don't need to ask questions, or the, answer, the, the answers are not important. Just have faith. Just believe. And that creates, I mean, that's a terrible answer, and it creates the impression that there is an antithesis between the brain, the intellect, knowledge on the one hand, and then faith. And that's, that's misdefining faith. Faith is not, it is not antithetical to thinking and knowledge. Well, Dr. Evans, thank you so much for your time today. It's been thrilling and truly uh, stimulating for us, and I hope for our listeners as well. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. And Dr. Evans, thank you so much for visiting and sharing just a small portion of what uh, you've gained through your wisdom and experience over the past 40 years of research and teaching on the Bible and Christianity. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's conversation. Don't forget to subscribe to our channel using your preferred podcast app and join us again next week. Conversations for Life is a listener-supported ministry of CrossLife. CrossLife exists to equip and empower married couples and parents to cultivate life in the home. For more information and additional resources mentioned in today's episode, please visit our website, crosslifetoday.org. You can also find us on Facebook at CrossLife Resources, Instagram, and Twitter. Until next time, take care and God bless.